Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to another episode of That's What People Do. You are joined by me, Ryan McGowan, and as always, James Kay. How are you doing today, buddy? I'm good, thank you, Ryan. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Um, Just uh, straight out of the bat, I've been really poorly the last week and a bit, um, and I'm still just getting over it. So apologies if I get a bit nasally or my voice starts to go or if I have to cough at some point. I will try to edit all of this out, but uh, I am... I'm just getting out of this really poorly state, so yeah, that's where I'm at. I'm, yeah. There's a lot going round. It's that time of year, isn't it? But you'd rather it, it now is... than Christmas. Yeah, it is that time of year. Everyone gets poorly, and uh, yeah, already I can feel my nose is starting to bung up. <laughs> oh no, the tissues ready. I'll try and do a lot. If I see you like struggling or like going to cough or blow your nose, or whatever, I'll just I'll talk <laughs> and do something interesting. Yeah. Just, like yeah. right, that's what I was doing now for people that didn't know what was happening. um right so just to give you guys a heads up of what's been going on napoleon the last episode went out a little while ago i think it was like two two three weeks ago um and i thought if i'm honest i thought i was going to get it in two episodes but uh i was i was uh part halfway through this episode and i remember saying to james i was like look is there any chance you can get an episode out in between? Because this is just too big. I'm not going to get it done in time. Um, so this is going to be a three-parter. Uh, we managed to get part two written out in time so that we could just get it out. So here it is. Um, you're welcome. <laughs> Why do I take on these fucking big ones? But you, um, you never know that you're doing it before you do it. And then you're in the middle of it and you can't stop. Yeah, that was that's something. Like, I, genuinely, I think there's something in this. I don't know if you've ever, like, you watch a YouTuber who's been doing it for years and they're like, oh, we want to take a break because, you know, you get fatigue of, like, con- mm. like making content all the time. I, I'm not saying that we're taking a break or anything like that, but, like, it's when, when I'm doing the bigger episodes, 
if I do one episode and like I can get it all done in one, it's like 40 to an hour long. That's nice. I like those ones because I can write it, get really invested in it and enjoy it. And then I can forget about it. When mm. you've got like part two, part three, even part four with like Mormons, it's so draining to continuously write stuff. Like how some people write just history books. I don't get it. People get really involved. Yeah. No, yeah, I understand. Like, I, it's 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 tough and i think it's i've got a, a really bad attention span as it is so i think it's one of those where once i've got the first one done i'm like oh i've done it no you're not you're not even halfway through the story Brian. ah <laughs> oh, oh yeah damn anyway but yeah i imagine before part three comes out we'll have some Christmassy episodes in between because it is that time of year um, oh yeah i mean to, to clarify to clarify part three is not coming out until the new year sorry everyone that's just that's not okay. happening <laughs> but there will be some fun Christmas stuff beforehand. Oh yeah, and a, the classic New Year's episode. Yes, so we've got uh, we've got a Christmassy episode coming out soon that will go out just before Christmas Day, uh, and then we've also got a New Year's one where we're going to round up the year. Uh, we're going to do a little quiz. I think we did that last year or the year before, one or the other. God, yeah. it's like we'll be going big into our quiz fifth, of the year. big quiz of the year. We'll be going into our fifth year. How mad, how mad is that? Um, That's fucking crazy. But yeah, so we're going to do that. So there's lots coming up. Um, I promise you that. Things are happening. Um, Christmas is just a tough time anyway. You know, it's always busy. It's so busy. It was last week we were talking about we need to get an episode down. Ryan was like, can you write one? I was like, I'd love to. But unfortunately, here's my calendar for the rest of the week. <laughs> yeah. And Ryan's was very much the same. Um, this week, I've had a lot more free time, but I've also just hit the fucking handbrake a little bit. So I need to get back on it. Mm, yeah. Um, right. Shall we get back on it, as you say? Yeah, let's. All right, let's do Napoleon Part 2. Now, in the last episode, we covered the rise of Napoleon from a relatively humble beginning in Corsica to rising the ranks in the military, helping to liberate Toulon from the monarchists and their English allies and slaughtering hundreds of civilians on the streets of Paris, all to see his star rise whilst the French Revolution was tearing apart the old regime. So... Napoleon is newly promoted to the rank of general in the French army of Italy. He's also a national hero after he put down that rebellion in Paris to establish the old monarchy. Now being this famous means you get invited to many a party. Parties that you really must attend to show face. Now we know that Napoleon isn't very sociable. His place is on the battlefield with his men talking tactics. This is where he feels alive. He's not overly comfortable at parties. And for me, I would say that the movie portrays this fairly well. We see Napoleon wandering around at a party, not really talking to anyone, just a drink in his hand as he people watches. Now, we all know that feeling when you're at a party and the vibe just isn't right and you find yourself on the outside despite being in the midst of it all. And for some people, they need that one person who is sociable to take the lead. Someone who effortlessly mingles and makes them seem... Uh, a little bit more comfortable. It makes it seem a little easier. And for Napoleon, that person is a woman named Josephine. Now, this series is on Napoleon, and by extension, Josephine comes into the story. But honestly, she could have an episode all of her own. She is a fascinating person. So let's try and give her some backstory, because I think it's imperative to her relationship with Napoleon. Now, the movie, however, sees things differently. They just about muster up one scene to give her a backstory, and even then, it's not really clear if it's her. Josephine was born on the island of Martinique, which is part of the Lesser Antilles in the southern part of the Caribbean. What's a French person doing on an island in the Caribbean, you may be asking? 
Well, I think it's safe to say you don't need three guesses to answer that one. Yes, Josephine was born into a family that had a plantation on the island where there were many a slave. France may have been one of the earliest nations to abolish slavery, but officially that was in 1848, a whole 34 years after the death of Josephine. So yes, Josephine was of the aristocracy and had slaves in her family while she was growing up. In fact, she wouldn't set foot on French soil until she was 16, accompanied by her father to be married off to a man who didn't want her. That one is quite a long story, so uh, to try and sum it up, Josephine was initially going to be married to this one guy, who then decided he didn't want to marry Josephine, he'd rather marry her sister, so he was like, I'd rather marry her please, but then she died, so he then went, I'll just take the 12 year old instead, uh, but As then the family did. went, yeah, as you do. And then the family went, no, you can't have the 12-year-old. And he went, oh, fine, I'll have Josephine. So that's how they got married. This is like third choice. Yeah. <laughs> and a 12-year-old was preferenced over her. What is interesting when I was looking this up is the reason why he didn't want Josephine. And it's because she was too close to him in age. So I think he was like 17 and she was 16. And that was the issue. Oh, and I don't know what that is, but we have seen a constant trend in history where men take younger women as their wives. And I don't know whether that's like a dominance thing. I'm not sure it, why that is. I'm sure it was. I, I, I don't know if it was as recently as the 1800s or like 1700s, but like back in the day, they used to think that 13, 14 year old girls were sort of the most fertile. Hmm. That so might I, be I think it. that probably comes into it. Yeah, that yeah, I suppose. I was going to say that makes sense, but then I feel like that was me justifying. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. Now we know that it doesn't really make sense. Um, but back then, I think is that's what they believed. But I guess ah. there is a power thing as well because it's so much easier to manipulate a twelve-year-old than it is a free-thinking sixteen-year-old. Yeah, who is like the same age as you? You'd be like, oh, it's so hard for me, and they'd be like, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Either way, yeah. naughty. Naughty. Now, safe to say, this didn't produce a very happy marriage, although I don't imagine many an arranged marriage of the aristocracy ever did. The only thing to be produced from this marriage were her two children, Eugene and Hortense. And I'll say this here because I'm not going to talk about it later on. Hortense, Josephine's daughter, is later married off to Napoleon's brother, Louis, which technically makes her own mother her sister-in-law makes her stepdad her brother-in-law and makes her uncle her husband. That's weird. But this is, it's again, really the aristocracy, weird. so it's just nothing out of the ordinary, is it? It's yeah, all it's really very bizarre. incestuous. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very bizarre. Um, I was like, because I, I saw that, and I was like, oh, we married him off. Wait, hold on. And then I was doing the family tree, like, you know, like fucking Charlie from Always Sunny, like that meme. Um <laughs> Now, At least it keeps it's... Christmas dinner, the table, smaller, because you don't have to, <laughs> no extended yeah. family. And like, do you call your mother your mother? Are you like, oh, sister, hello. Oh. Oh, that's grim. Mm. Now, Josephine's husband, I think it's safe to say, was a bit of a knob. In, uh, at one point or other, he left her for an entire year to go and spend it in a fancy house with one of his mistresses living at large. And they wonder why people hated the aristocracy so much that they started beheading them just typical men isn't it that's just men behavior yeah now by the time of the french revolution josephine's husband was arrested as one of the aristocracy and was beheaded via guillotine 
Josephine, on the other hand, was arrested and placed in a cell with other people and was separated from her children. Now, this would have been an absolutely terrifying time. To explain it, right, she has no idea if her children are even alive since she's got no contact. Her husband, who is the only security she's ever had, has just had his head locked off and she's now sitting in a cell with a bunch of other people who at random are taken away from the cell on the, every other day and just never seen again. And mm. you're sat in that cell going, could tomorrow be me? That and, is terrifying. Mate, it's genuinely fucking awful. And the only thing I can liken it to, if anyone's watched Game of Thrones, there's like a scene in Harrenhal when a bunch of prisoners are just stood there and they're every, it's got to the point where everyone just stands there and just waits to be picked because they just know they're going to die. Like, it's mm. awful. And I can imagine it was similar to that. Mm. Because as well, it it put people into survival mode, right? So this is genuine. This is what happened in those cells, right? The only thing that stopped you from being executed was being pregnant. You know, the whole plead the belly case, right? Mm -hmm. It meant that the majority of the women in those cells were actively giving themselves to any and all of the men in the cells desperate to get themselves pregnant to stop themselves being guillotined. Death by snoo snoo. (laughs) The men were having a fucking great time. If you're going to go, that's the way you want to (laughs) go. When I was writing this, I was thinking, that's genuinely fucking awful, and you made that joke. (laughs) I'm not being funny, but if I was in a position where I'm like, I'm probably going to get my head cut off, it's it's my time, put me in a cell full of women, and in that situation, like, I I might be dying, but I'll be dying a happy man. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, but... Think about the women, right, who were that desperate that they're willing to do this, oh, right? Oh, horrendous. Really sad. Really, really sad. <laughs> right, so to, to put more in perspective, right, during their fancy lives as the aristocracy, during their fancy lives as the aristocracy, the idea that they would just sleep around with any and any any and all men just uh, about was absolutely abhorrent to these women, right? They'd likely have lost their, their husbands, their homes, their family probably would have disowned them. They likely would have fallen into sex work just to sustain themselves. Their life would have been ruined. And yet here they are, women of the aristocracy who see themselves as being better than everyone else, resorting to selling their bodies just to stay alive. Eat the rich, I guess. <laughs> I don't know what goes around, comes around. I don't know what I'm trying to say. I'm not like, I'm sad for them, of course, because a lot of them didn't, had no part especially the women like they weren't really part of the sort of the riffraff that made all the decisions to keep the peasants down or whatever but i don't know it's it's difficult to not side with the revolution whenever a revolution happens fair 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 now this is something that is mentioned in the movie when josephine says to napoleon that she's done some terrible things in her past and she's concerned that napoleon is going to care about that and he sits there and says, no, I don't. I don't care. Um, which oh, is, is quite a nice... Not, is that what she's nodding towards, that she's slept around? I think that might be it, is that she's had to do some quite awful things as far as she's concerned to survive. Um, okay. And I think that's what she's hinting at. I do also think that might be the scene where she then goes, if you look at my nun, you'll never want anything else ever again. I think that's that scene. It's also pretty horrendous. If someone said, if I was on a date with a woman who I was interested in and she turned to me and said those words, I would be horrified. 
Yeah, I'd be a bit concerned. I'd be a bit like, uh, how, how often that, does this one work? <laughs> yeah, what, uh, one awful sentence to say to another human being. I'd be like, mm. I'd, I don't really want to see it now. You've sort of taken all the mystery <laughs> out of it. Like, yeah, what if it's what if it's not as good as she sells it out to be? <laughs> I'm not being funny, Ryan. I'm always on the side. There is no sexual organ, both male or female, that is attractive. They're all awful things. They just look <laughs> horrific. Penises, they look, they're just not nice. They are functional. They're, they are. They serve a fucking purpose, and mm. they're good at it, but there's a reason why we keep them covered out and about. <laughs> now, Josephine is relatively lucky, okay? She's freed, and her children are safe. She's even allowed to keep her possessions from her marriage, which means she has a home, but she's virtually no income. She is a woman with no skills. As a woman of the old aristocracy, the only thing she has in her armory are her words and her body, and she puts them both to good use. She needs to find a suitor who'd be willing to take on a single mother of two from aristocratic stock. Unfortunately, Whilst there are few in the way wanting to make an honest woman of her, there are plenty who are happy to have her as their mistress. Now, this comes with some benefits. She's relatively looked after, favours are sent her way by her male friends, but she is constantly having to hustle to make a living because another new hussy comes along and then she gets pushed aside. Mm. And it's while she's hustling that in 1795, she meets Napoleon. At a party, Napoleon spots a woman he vaguely recognises. See, Josephine is actually the mistress of his friend, Paul Barat. That's the man who gave Napoleon the orders to absolutely slaughter all those civilians in the last episode. He, she is his mistress. Mm. And what he sees, he liked. And the film depicts the style for the time really well. We see Josephine and a lot of the other women around this time wearing their hair cropped. You know, that pixie look that she's got mm. going on in the movie. See... This was fashionable at the time for most women to show that they survived the terror of the revolution since your hair was cut in this way before you were being beheaded by guillotine. So by having their hair cut, they were like, ah, look at me, I survived. Mm. Um, And as well, she's wearing a choker around her neck. That was very popular as well for the time because it symbolised where the guillotine would have cut if it had ever got to them, but it didn't. So they were wearing that as a symbol i quite like this it's like them saying fuck you with their fashion choices i think it's really cool yeah absolutely now napoleon was obsessed with this woman she was a little older than him she was 32 years old when she met napoleon who was aged 26 what is interesting as well is when they get married she ages herself down by like four years and ages him up by 18 months Hmm. to try and like level it out make it not look like such a big age gap yeah um and i think at least neither of them's 12 so well yeah that is true that is true but this is the bit it wasn't overly common for a man especially a young man like napoleon to take on an older woman especially a widow with children but he was absolutely besotted by her her wit her charm he was completely intoxicated and i think it's also imperative to say that napoleon is awkward as fuck with women so this is a fun story napoleon lost his virginity as a young man to a sex worker which apparently was very common for young frenchmen at the time they would just go to a brothel and that's where they'd lose their virginity sort of a a right passageway but he didn't just go there and go oh i don't really know what i'm doing and then she sort of led in the way he was like this he was napoleon about it all so he went there and went why are you a sex worker like why (laughs) do you do this and like she's like uh i mean 
do you, do you, do you want to do this or not? <laughs> Why are yeah, you just interviewing me? Yeah, it's not, it's not an interview. Um, but yeah, he apparently he berated her for being like a sex worker and then proceeded to have sex with her and that's how he lost his virginity. Right. Yeah. Um, so it seems that Napoleon didn't really have much time for women, right? Because he's a soldier. That's what he wants to do. He's got other things on his mind all the time. And in fact, he doesn't really know how to talk to them either. So I think meeting Josephine was... Josephine's funny, she's smart, she took the lead with social engagements. I think he saw her as almost like a curiosity. He was fascinated by her. He didn't he he wanted to know how she ticked, I think. Mm. Now, I think she's smart, right? I think she plays hard to get. Not because she doesn't necessarily want him. Um I think she's all right with the idea of him. At this time, he is the most famous man in France. He's got a great future ahead of him. And I think she sees a wonderful opportunity here. She knows that he's obsessed with her and she plays him enough to keep him wanting more. Things like, um, we know he's a prolific letter writer. He writes Josephine letters like you would not fucking believe. But Josephine leaves him blue ticks, man. She leaves him on red all the fucking time. She never replies to him. Very rarely does she actually reply in letters. And that's enough. That's enough that keeps him going, she's just... I'm going to write another letter and in this time I'm going to be even more romantic and she's like this is cringe like but that's how, really that, that happens today as well doesn't it like if you want someone to like you more you sort of give them a little bit of the cold shoulder because then it makes <laughs> yeah. them like sort of fight for you a bit more and in their head they then think that they want you more it's all it's, oh, it's tactics yeah. old school tactics apparently this has been going on for a long time what one thing she does as well she actually changes her name for him so Josephine's not her real name her actual name is Marie, but she always went by one of her middle names, Rose. Napoleon, however, preferred to call her Josephine after one of her other middle names, and she just went with it. She straight up just went, okay, fine. Never argued it. She just went, okay, I'm I'm Josephine now. I think in private, for some people, she was still Rose, but for yeah. the most part, she just took on Josephine. Now, I heard... Um, I was watching a, a, a sort of a, a couple of historians to talk about um, their sex life and whatnot. And there's a sex historian called Kate Lister, really, really good. She um, she was debating with uh, Dan Snow, the historian, about this sort of why did he call her Josephine? And Dan Snow came up with a really good theory that calling her Rose came meant coming with all the baggage that she was so scared about in her past by calling her josephine that was him drawing a line on her past and saying you're now josephine none of the other stuff in the past matters oh okay yeah it's just a fresh start for her maybe yeah um she but she didn't choose to call herself josephine he did which to me screams of boyfriend who's terrified of the fact that their girlfriend has had a past Oh, yeah, but this is the thing, isn't it? I defy anyone in any relationship. We've all had the conversation with our partners of being like, oh, tell me about your sex life, tell me about, like, I'm fine with it. The second they start describing to you what they've done in the past, no one can sit there and say that they're completely comfortable with that situation. (laughs) Not one person. So Napoleon clearly knows about this past and has been like, it's fine, I love you, you've had this past, whatever, but we ain't ever going to fucking talk about it ever again. Yeah. Because I don't want the thought of you like sleeping around like that. No, no man wants to think of their wife, girlfriend, whatever, sleeping with someone else. But, Unless you're I mean, into that kind of thing, but then you're a cuckold, and that's a whole, that's a, that's a kink, and that's your thing. Well, we come on to how Napoleon possibly is a cuck later on, but anyway, um, I think there's something to be said about this in that. 
I don't think he was that supportive. Uh, so I, I think him choosing to call her Josephine and hide her backstory from then on, I think is quite a negative thing. And I don't necessarily think it's about the whole, oh, she slept around, whatever. I think it's just the whole thing that if you have a partner who you can be honest with, to be like, tell them your truth, your history, everything that makes you you, all the bad stuff that come with it, like, I don't think he's that person. She can't talk to him about this stuff, you know? Mm. Um, I think that's quite sad in a, in, a, in a weird way. I think that's quite a sad thing that she, she probably can't talk to him about things that she's been through, maybe. I don't know. We don't know. Uh, anyway, there's a lot to be said about whether Josephine actually loved Napoleon like he loved her. So I asked the question, did she like him in that way? And the answer is, I don't know. Nobody knows. Uh, we will never know. But I think it is clear to say that he was way more into her than she was into him. Um, he was obsessed with her. He used to write her letters all the time. And in one of his letters, he says, quote, I awake full of you. Your image and the memory of last night's intoxicating pleasure has left no rest to my senses. He's like, oh, he's just shaking just thinking about their night before. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I mean, some people say that's romantic. Other people would say that's a bit too full on. It is a bit full on, but I also think he's a bit of a boy. Like this, he's a bit of a hopeless romantic, and yeah, that that sex historian Kate Lister, she her opinion is that you know Napoleon probably was quite good in the sack. Oh really? It's always the quiet <laughs> ones, isn't it? Yeah. Well, she says about a lot of his letters, they are very sexualized. Some of them, um, and she was like, lots of men like to big themselves up in the you know the DMs and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. But she was like, a lot of men can't back it up. But she was like, so with him, it's either. Because it's different. You're texting. That's easy. You're writing these mm. words down. Do you know what I mean? Like, so she was like, he. She was thinking like, you can either, he either is really good at this stuff, or he's just all talk, <laughs> and he's writing it down. Or, or yeah, all writing, not all talk. Again, we'll we'll never know. Isn't the one? I don't know if you mentioned it later. Wrong ways. Like, I'll be home in three days. Don't wash. No, I have not got that. Um, many. That is, is fucking wild. I don't know what that means though. I I there's I think there's two that ways of interpreting. We know that. what that means. Surely we I, know what that means. I think there are two ways to interpret that. I think the first one is the one that everyone thinks is downright dirty, and it's the idea that he wants her to be smelly and awful because he likes yeah, rank sweaty stuff. and just yeah. I think it's the different one. So I think it's the case of people didn't bathe as often back then. So I reckon he was saying, "Look, I'm going to be home in three days. Don't have your bath yet," because he wants oh, to. Like, I think I'll he have wants it with to. You. I, yeah, I think he wants to join her in the bath. Oh, right, that's kind of cuter, but I'm going to go with the... He wants her sweaty and smelly and... <laughs> oh, no. A bit, like, <laughs> I don't know, tasty, if you know what I mean. Stop it, he wants that Parma ham smell. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. That's the French for you. So, Josephine became Napoleon's mistress, and in 1796 they were married and had a rather unsatisfying wedding night... See, Josephine had a dog called Fortune, who she absolutely adored, and who had a very well-established place on her bed. So when it came to the wedding night, Fortune would not move when it came to Napoleon <laughs> wanting to get intimate with Josephine. In fact, the dog wasn't going anywhere, and he got a little confused by what Napoleon was trying to do to his master, and had to go at the naked Napoleon biting him on the leg. <laughs> Safe to say... Uh, he was never a fan of that dog. No, that's a mood killer. But lucky for him, he wouldn't have to part up with the dog for long. Two days after their wedding, Napoleon had to get back to his duties as general of the French army of Italy and went off to war. 
Now, that's about as much of their relationship as we're going to look into. There will be mentions of her here and there, but unlike the film, this is not a gossip magazine. Uh, We could honestly do an entire episode on their tempestuous relationship. We could delve into the letters that he writes. We could talk about the things that he wants to do to Josephine. We could even talk about his nickname for her, Foof, which I have if you want to know. I'm desperate to know. (laughs) So there are two that I've managed to find. Uh, One is Her Little Black Forest. That's horrendous. That's the more nah, the more that sits with me, the more I think about it, the worse that gets. <laughs> That's horrific. That tells me two things, right? No, no, One, we, don't, we yeah, we know what that fuck no, that's yeah. so bad. <laughs> yeah, so uh yeah. She's got some foliage down there. Yes, she has some foliage down there. The other nickname is Baron de Keppen. Explain. No one knows. Baron no one knows Kepin. why. Baron as in de Baron is in like a Baron, like yeah, maybe yeah, but like no one's been able to find out why. That maybe was just, it's a, it's just a little, it's just a little in joke between them, isn't it? Yeah, it probably is just a little in joke. Yeah, but anyway, it's better than whatever the fuck the other one was. <laughs> the little black forest. That's horrendous. That's so bad. <laughs> now we've talked about Josephine and her foof. Let's continue. <laughs> Napoleon is now in Italy with his army. The Italian campaigns of the French Revolution Wars are in full swing. Now, this was a series of conflicts between the French Republic and a coalition of nations such as the Habsburg Empire, the Kingdom of Naples and the Kingdom of Sardinia Piedmont. As mentioned on the last episode, I'm not going into detail with all the battles. We are not a military history podcast, so I will cover some and gloss over many. Now, Napoleon would go on to be involved in 60-plus battles during his military career, so uh, I think that makes sense why I'm not going to go over them all. Hmm. Now, it does raise a question as to why so many battles. And I think there are two distinct periods, really, that we are going to look at for this answer. You've got the Revolutionary Wars of the French Republic and the Napoleonic Wars, and both have very different reasons for going to war. So... Let's get into the first period, the Revolutionary Wars. We've covered battles before when the French Revolution first kicked off. The Battle of Toulon and others were attacks generally by other monarchy-led nations wishing to put down the revolutionary feeling and re-establish the old order of the monarchy. In this instance, France had no choice but to fight to preserve its revolution. It was quite literally fighting for its own existence. But the monarchy has been gone for around three years now. The revolution is kind of over. There is a new regime in charge, but they're god-awful actually running a country. Now, because of this, the nation's coffers are virtually empty. There are food shortages and people are not happy. Then you've got huge armies in the country that need to be fed and paid. These guys cost a serious amount of money. You can maybe get away with letting your civilians fend for themselves for a time, but you cannot do that to your army. You will not have much of an army if you do that. Instead, what you could do is go to war with literally anyone. This solves a few problems at a very high risk-reward ratio. You send your army off to fight, which means you don't have to spend a lot of money feeding them. They can go and find food in the country they've invaded. There's also plenty of opportunity for plunder to be sent back to fill the nation's coffers and cover the massive gaps. It also gives people something else to think about. Instead of complaining about the fact that they've got no food in their bellies, they can be proud of the fact that France is fighting the good fight. 
promoting the revolution on their behalf. We can go without, all for the glory of France. And if that fails, they could always go and join that army and then be fed properly at a very high risk of being killed out there, which would then solve the regime's original problem of not having enough food to go around. So that explains why Napoleon was leading his army of Italy to war in 1796. A huge problem was that the coffers were so bare that it had affected the army itself. When Napoleon inspected his troops, he was shocked to learn that they were woefully lacking in equipment. Lots of soldiers didn't have any weapons, but worse still, most of them didn't even have shoes. They were in no real state to be going to war, so Napoleon spent time training up his men and outfitting them however he could, and planned to take whatever they needed. To do this, he needed to inspire the men, and he did this by saying, quote, You are hungry and ill-fed. The government owes you much. It can give you nothing. Your patience, your courage are admirable, but they procure you no glory. No fame shines upon you. I want to lead you into the most fertile plains in the world. Rich provinces, great cities will lie in your power. You will find there honour, glory and riches. Which I think is quite cool. That's a I'd cool follow him. Little... Yeah, I'd be like, yeah, I'm, I'm down. That's something that Napoleon is really good at in his military career, is doing speeches to inspire his men. They love mm. him for it. And I think this is something that's often forgot about with Napoleon, is that he was once one of them. Sure, he was of a minor noble family, and he started his career from a fairly lower rung of the ladder. But because he started that low he would have come into contact with quite a lot of his regular soldiers, so I think he knew what drove them. It wasn't necessarily all about, or for the glory of France. That's what you say publicly. In reality, a lot of these soldiers, they just wanted some money, they wanted to be fed well, and have a place that they could sort of make a name for themselves and just be someone. It was in that where you found glory. Not necessarily for France, but for you and your fellow soldiers, the glory was in doing something amazing together, something that you could both brag about to each other and other people in the army. That's where the glory was. It wasn't necessarily just for the glory of France. It was your own personal glory. And I think he knew that and he really went off on that. So without wishing to get too into it, let's talk about Napoleon's Italian campaign. It was inspired. Napoleon's army of Italy was viewed by the French government as a bit of a sideshow. Their main focus was on the armies of the German border. They were fighting the Dutch, they were fighting the Prussians, they had a lot going on over there. So down south by the Alps, they were looking at them just thinking, ah, you're just a show of force, you're just there to make sure that no one sort of comes around this side. So that's why they were sort of woefully uh, underfunded, because they really weren't expecting them to do too much. Which was a shock to them when Napoleon just tore up the region and made whole empires capitulate. <laughs> in in northern Italy, there are two noticeable enemies, the Austrians of the Habsburg Empire and the Kingdom of Sardinia-Piedmont. Napoleon had 38,000 men, more than the Austrians and the Piedmonts had separately, but if they were to unite, they would overwhelm him. So he made a play to stop that happening. Napoleon knew that his enemies would expect him to take the strategic city of Genoa. It was an obvious target, but if he did, the Austrians and Piedmonts could then link up and absolutely devastate him. So he wanted to make sure that they couldn't link up. He eliminated them one by one by splitting them up. In between the two was a place called Dago. If Napoleon could take this city, he would take the advantage of having them split up and then he could go after the weaker army of the Piedmonts. Once they were destroyed, he could then focus his attention onto the Austrians. 
In short, Napoleon fucking nailed it. He managed to chase the Piedmont army, making them flee in terror. His army could rest for a time before moving on to their next bout with the Austrians. An arousing speech proceeded with a very fitting line to motivate the men. Quote, Two armies which lately attacked you in full confidence now fly before you in terror. That's, uh, you're like, yeah, yeah, too fucking right they do. I don't even have shoes, bro. Come on. <laughs> Following on from this lightning success against the Piedmonts, a peace treaty was signed. Napoleon was able to end the war with the Piedmonts in three weeks. Now, to put that into perspective, this war had been raging for four years. Fuck. And he just he just went into that region and went, nah, fuck this, man. This is done. <laughs> I'm yeah. not having this. I'm not dicking around here. Let's just get this done. And he did it in three weeks. It's now the Austrians' turn. Something that Napoleon is seriously good at is breaking up his armies, making them smaller and moving them around the place with ease. It was a rather uncouth move back in the day. Your strength was in your numbers. The bigger the army, the stronger and more likely you were to win. But it made you incredibly slow to manoeuvre and required a lot of food to keep the army going. You couldn't stay in one place for too long because you'd exhaust the supply of food in that area where you'd set up. You'd just actually just tear up the whole fucking land. There'd be nothing left and you've got to move. Mm. But that would take forever because it's just so big. But Napoleon, on the other hand, did the opposite. He traded strength for manoeuvrability and speed, sectioning his army off to pick small skirmishes, freaking out the enemy and eventually enveloping them. In an attempt to avoid this, the Austrians flee to reinforce themselves. Napoleon and his men chase them. He catches up to their rear guard at a place called Lodi, where they've just crossed a bridge on the way out. Here, a bloody skirmish to take the bridge occurs. Napoleon has his cannons on the banks of the river firing on the Austrians on the other side of the bridge. He even gets stuck in, aiming the cannon himself. And this earns him tremendous respect from his men, who all give him a nickname. His nickname is Le Petit Caporal, which means the little corporal. Uh, <laughs> and the reason they called him the little corporal was because aiming of cannons was a job that was for a lowly corporal. And Napoleon is just out here as their general. He's the, He leads that entire army and he's like, bro, I'm going to get in there. Look, look, watch me. That's how you fucking aim it. Fire that cannon now. Bomb. Yeah. And then he hits his target and they're like, this guy, this is the guy. He can he, walk the walk and talk the talk. Yeah, this boy, he's, he's a boy. He knows what he's doing. No, Napoleon is victorious, having only lost 500 men to Austria's 2,000. Just, just some big numbers. Yeah, yeah. Now, that is a victory. 500 men are still dead, though. It, one mm. thing that I find is quite scary, and we'll talk about this at the end of part three, is sort of like how many men die under Napoleon's sort of rule and, and mm. under his battles that he wages. But these are battles where you'll see upwards of 50,000 people on the battlefield and 20,000 people will die and they'll go, well, this is a victory. This is a fantastic victory. 20,000 yeah. people of your own army have died. I find that really incredible that you can just not see these numbers and think, oh, they're all people who've got a, yeah. a parent and, and probably kids or whatever. I find that so bizarre. Mm. Now, it's this battle that starts to imbue Napoleon with a grand sense of self. He says, quote, I no longer regarded myself as a simple general, but as a man called upon to decide the fate of people. This guy is no longer seeing himself as just a military man. He's a man who decides who lives and dies. It's his commands, the words that come out of his mouth, that decides who lives and dies. It's a bit of a god complex. 
there is a bit of a god complex and like we'll, we'll sort of touch on later uh, in part three where he gets to a point where he'll start to feel like he's actually invincible like he can't be beaten mm. and even even here in part two you'll start to get a sense of that this guy is untouchable he, he avoids everything that's when you start making mistakes when you get really sort of I don't know, what's the word, blasé with everything. Yeah, resting on your laurels and whatnot. Hey, I just thought laurels. He's, he becomes an emperor with a laurel reef. Yeah. Oh, foreshadowing. He also... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. ...starts to live more lavishly. His success in Italy means that Milan is ripe for the taking. There is a small number of Austrians holding out, but it's nothing to Napoleon who storms in taking the city. The people of Milan are a little torn over their new overlords... Some herald them as liberators, others as oppressors. Napoleon sees himself as a virtual king in this city. He sets him up in a place called Palazzo Serbiloni, which is a very nice palace in the heart of Milan. Here is where he sits with his feet up on a throne taking court. People have to come to him if they want mm. to talk to him. Um, I've seen pictures of this place. It's stunningly beautiful. Um and I just get this, you'll, you'll be walking through it going, who the fuck am I about to meet? And then there's Wee Napoleon just sat in a chair like, yo, what's up? Yeah. I think here is a good time to start hinting at some of the reasons as to why Napoleon is seen as a tyrant. France is now a republic, the last king they beheaded. But what's important is his religion. He was Catholic. Naturally, the Pope doesn't take too kindly to people murdering a divine king of the Catholic persuasion. In fact, when Louis was guillotined, Pope Pius hailed him as a martyr, saying, quote, We believe that he happily exchanged an impermanent royal crown and lilies that quickly fade for another permanent crown woven of the immortal lilies of the angels. Now, for the people of the revolution, Louis was a symbol of greed, which is a sin. If the Pope himself can proclaim a gluttonous king as a martyr, a man who abused his position and status, a man who used his faith as a weapon to keep the cycle of oppression going, if a Pope who is the holiest of the holy can do that, then surely Catholicism is pro-oppression and by extension anti-revolution. That's quite mm. smart thinking, really. Yeah. So for a lot of revolutionaries, this made Catholics an enemy of the state and free game. In Milan, many atrocities were performed against Catholic priests. This kicked off at least two notable revolts in both Milan and a place called Pavia. Napoleon is able to quash the rebellion as easily as he dealt with the one in Paris, making a show of it in a place called Pavia. 
On his way to this place to put down a rebellion, he's met with a thousand armed rebels. Now, they're naturally no match for Napoleon, who puts them down with fair ease. But then at Pavia, a hundred people are killed and the place is burned. And many a Catholic priest involved in the rebellion is just straight up shot. And Napoleon writes of this, quote, a terrible example which will be effective. <laughs> which is such a cold way to look at it. It, it, it doesn't care, does it? Especially taking on the uh, Catholic Church. That's kind of a mad thing to do. Because they're so powerful. Because some people say that the Roman Empire never died. It is now just sort of the Holy Roman Empire. And then that turned into the Catholic Church. Interesting. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a sort of a period as well where if you're Catholic and you want to be a king, you have to be given permission by the Pope. If the Pope says you're not the king, you're not the king. Well, unless you're in England. Yeah, and we're, yeah, and in England. Because Henry VIII at that point had been like, yeah, we're not listening to you, pointy hat. We're doing our own thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which, like, sorry, that's a quick aside. For Henry VIII, he was like, hold on a minute. I'm supposed to be divine king i'm appointed by mm. god himself you fucking can't you're his just you're just his messenger i'm the king yeah, you're some bloke you're just some bloke yeah the king actually made me that god actually made me come out of my mum to be the king you can get fucked <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was uh all because he didn't like his wife i love that though i love that i'll just be ahead of my own fucking faith yeah why not <laughs> that's such a drunk thought in it he was definitely drunk when he came up with that idea <laughs> Oh, 100%. Overall, Napoleon's time in Italy was a success. He won victories on the battlefield, secured the respect of his men, and established himself as a competent general. But he'd also managed to scare the shit out of the French government. Remember I said that the government couldn't afford to pay the army? Well, Napoleon yep. could, and he was paying them handsomely. He was letting them pillage and loot. He was pretty much letting them get away with murder. He had won them glory on the battlefield, and they adored him, which is what scared the shit out of the French government. They could not have an army that was more loyal to their general than to the nation itself. Napoleon is a problem. You see why there's like um, parallels between Napoleon and Caesar. Yes, because Caesar was the same. He was a, a an emperor that the Senate of Rome really feared um, because he was a general that was getting way too powerful and eventually he did become Caesar. Yeah. So, and we all know what what's going to happen to Napoleon. There, there's a lot of parallels there. There are a lot of parallels, to be fair. That's that's a very fair thing. A, a lot of historians, well, I've watched quite a few documentaries, have brought up that parallel. There are there have also been some that have paralleled him to Hitler and I'm like, that's a bit of a stretch, but whatever. No, I, don't, I don't think that's fair. No, I'm not sure that's fair. So, Napoleon was soon brought back to Paris, much to his dismay, where he found out about his wife's extramarital affairs. Now, we know she was popular with everyone. She was a socialite, and just because she was married, that didn't stop her socialising. She began an affair with a young military officer mere weeks after her marriage to Napoleon. Which leads me to believe that she was already seeing this young officer before they got married. I think that's what's happening. You don't just strike that up. In a matter of weeks. I think that's uh, that was already happening. Unless Napoleon really is uh, that bad in bed. Yeah. And <laughs> and she needed like a little something on the side. Oh, something, something. Um, she's weird, man. Like this, this goes to this whole she didn't really love him vibe, right? So 
I don't talk about this in too much detail, but I know the fact anyway, right? So um, when Napoleon finds out that she's been sleeping with this young officer, she's like, he's pissed, right? He's like, I'm not having this. I don't want. I don't want nothing to do with it. And she has to go to him to plead um, to like take her back. She brings the mm. boy with her. She brings her lover with her, and he's. Just... I bet he was shitting himself. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine? Like he's just like, oh, I just think honestly, I really don't want to go. And she's like, no, <laughs> you're coming. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now, the movie depicts. Uh, Napoleon finding out about his wife's marital affairs in Egypt after two minutes and then flees to go and have it out with his wife. That's not the case at all. That's not what happened. People knew about this case, right? So he was the butt of many a cuck joke. He was in the newspapers. Pictures of him, his wife, him being cucked, all this kind of stuff. It was out there. This is public. And he nearly... Wasn't it in, like, British newspapers as well? Mate, the... Right, so this is a different thing. This happens later. Um, the British managed to intercept a ship that's carrying a lot of documents, including letters from Napoleon to Josephine. And they're like, mm. this is gold. And they just print the whole thing. <laughs> they print all of it in the papers. And everyone finds it hilarious that he's like, you know, r- it, writing love letters to the Little Black Forest. Yeah. I mean, as you would. But isn't it also like where the whole rumour that he was really short comes from, just British propaganda, yeah. just to make him seem less scary than he was. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, haven't, I haven't got it written down anywhere, but he is average height average height for his time. So no one would have looked at him and gone, well, oh, you're a bit small. Like He was yeah. absolutely normal height for his time. Um, but yeah, the British started to um, depict him as just a wee little general who was just angry at the world. Um, and that's what we remember <laughs> now. Little man syndrome, yeah. So um, where was I? Her affair is public knowledge. Like it's it's all in. It's like in the OK magazine. It's headlines on newspapers. It's fucking everywhere. He can't get out of it, and he nearly divorces her over it because it's so fucking embarrassing. Not just for him, but for her as well. And it doesn't go down well with the family. Uh, it's noted that Napoleon's mother and sister absolutely fucking hated Josephine before this whole affair thing happened. They didn't like her. They mm. thought she was a social climber. Um. And also, because Josephine had aristocratic background, when she's at parties and functions, she definitely turns it on. She can switch that aristocratic, like, stand up tall, look up, all this kind of, like, point your nose, talking, everything like that. And they didn't like that she did that because she would do that around them. And because they're from, like, you know, a small minor noble family in Corsica who have got very strong accents, don't speak much French... She would then start playing the, the you know the noble little queen whatever, and they just hated that. They absolutely hated her. They thought she was a little bit of like a bit poncy. <laughs> now, um, I do also want to use this opportunity to point out that Napoleon is not an angel here, right? He is known to have had at least twenty-two affairs and has a fair few illegitimate children. Okay, so let's not feel too sorry. For him, uh, just because his wife's having her end away, all right? Well, let's let's not feel sorry for him. So, Napoleon wouldn't have long to sulk, though. He was brought back to Paris for a reason, okay? Not just to get him away from his loyal army of Italy, but to plan an invasion of England. I feel like this deserves a... Mate, and so many people have tried, so many people have failed. Bring it on. <laughs> Yes, of course. Uh, it doesn't amount to much since he would never invade England despite wanting it so badly. He just really wants to invade England. Now, in case you didn't know, England is an island nation. 
That means that its navy is its jewel in the crown. The United Kingdom we know today would not be the nation it is without its historic navy. With it, the British Empire would at one point in time have the biggest empire to have ever existed, and none of that would have been possible without the navy. For Napoleon, he likely felt a sense of impending doom looking over the channel at the White Cliffs of Dover, knowing that he could never cross it without the English navy swarming in and obliterating them. But his job was to plan an invasion, so he did. He came up with a plan for 65 purpose-built gunboats and hundreds of smaller fishing vessels to transport 24,750 men to the English Isles. But he concluded that it would never work. Even if he could get across the channel, it was not a matter of if, but when the Royal Navy would come to the rescue. Napoleon concluded that it was a dumb idea and it was called off. But that's the thing, even if you manage to get to the shores, at that point the Navy has like obliterated a lot of your men. And then you suddenly reach the shores of England and then you're just met with the military and you have barely anything left. I mean, one of the worst things is supply lines, right? So you need to have a constant supply line of food, all that kind of stuff coming in. You can't always rely on the land to sustain your army because, as we'll learn um, in part three, when Napoleon goes to Russia, Russia's plan is fucking, I will destroy the fucking ground that you are walking on so there is nothing left to feed on. You won't even be able to... You've got to respect that about the Russians. Oh, God, It's not yeah. the only time they do that in history either. It's just like, if I, if, if you can't have it, no, if I can't have it, nobody can. That is exactly it. Scorched earth policy. They're like, you will not even be able to little, like, suckle on a piece of grass after we're done with it. We will burn all of this to the ground. At that point, you need supply lines coming in, right? So for Napoleon, if he went to England, he, like, chances are we're not going to burn the shit out of our place, right? But we're such a small place that it probably wouldn't have been able to sustain an army for too long. So we'd need supply lines coming in. At that point, the army, the, the Navy would probably just blockade its own island from anyone coming in um, and just starve mm. them out, which is quite cool. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I mean, the, the last successful invasion of England was, what, 1066? Yeah. And and some would argue that was only because our military was up north fighting Vikings, and that's when the Normans sort of decided that was their opportunity yeah i think that's i think that's quite a fair and accurate thing to say is that they only beat us us they only beat the anglo-saxons because the anglo-saxons had just been at war and then marched fucking an entire country length back down to come fight someone else and they were knackered and tired and half of the forces would have been decimated and then within yeah. within the conquerors like oh, i'm a conqueror it's like bro you just kicked a dead man whilst he was down like come on <laughs> yeah we were whilst we anglo-saxons were tired because we're more norman now aren't we well speak for yourself i'm uh scandy <laughs> yeah you, you did your ancestry test i did i had 0.2 percent i went axe throwing yesterday and i uh embodied my 0.2 percent scandinavian i was really shit at first but then i got quite good ah, very good very good i got my other half to do her um dna testing and she uh she's got quite a lot of eastern european which is quite cool oh really mm, quite a lot of uh, belarusian and ukrainian oh somewhere yeah and french and german she's very european mm. get them out keep them out <laughs> stop the boats <laughs> <laughs> now but there is all right where was i all oh, right yeah so the... <laughs> i love it when we do these sometimes we just interrupt and we have a little talk but then i'm like the way i've written the script is like i have to just carry on the sentence but <laughs> it makes no sense so let's just carry on uh so what was the saying? napoleon concluded that the inv invasion of england was an absolute dumb idea he called it off right but there is a way to get to the english and it's not through military means it's through trade 
See, the British Empire was so vast and wealthy, it was bringing in foods and wealth from all over the world, especially from India at this point in time. While direct trade was going down and around the continent of Africa, news and important documents were going overland in Egypt, speeding up communications. Now, the thought was that if the French could hold Egypt, they would scupper the English's lines of communication. What they really thought that would happen to England as a result of this is absolutely beyond me. It just sounds like a really petty attempt to disrupt things with no real effect. Um, there was a thought that Napoleon from Egypt could then push on to India and then discuss uh, things with Indian princes, but uh, I mean, that seems a bit far-fetched. The French at one point or another did have forts and a military presence in India, but then uh, the East Indian Company was just like, now get the fuck out. Uh, and then yeah. Britain pretty much did the whole thing on its own. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, Napoleon set off from the port city of Toulon, the site of his first victory, with 30,000 men, 167 scientists consisting of mathematicians, naturalists, chemists, and many others. Now, this was as much of a journey of discovery as it was a military operation. There wasn't too much in the way in regard to military powers out there. They would fight for sure, but this was a time for France to become a culturally enlightened nation, although slavery would still be around for the next 50 years. For Napoleon, it was his chance to become like his military idols, like Caesar and Alexander the Great before him. Glossing over this wee trip to Malta, um, which is kind of important, but not to our story, Napoleon arrives in Egypt in June of 1798. Now, one part of his story that I find legit quite funny is how close Napoleon will get on several occasions during this campaign to being either captured or killed. While crossing the Mediterranean Sea to Egypt, a 40-year-old Admiral Horatio Nelson had recently entered the Mediterranean via Gibraltar and was hunting down the French fleet. Luckily for Napoleon, Nelson was too quick and got to Egypt a whole 24 hours before Napoleon did and left. That's so funny. Yeah, he left, <laughs> assuming that they probably would be going elsewhere. Like, I love the idea that he's chasing someone. You're like, where the fuck are they? They're behind you. <laughs> like, he got there and went, ah, oh, well, they must not have been coming to Egypt. I'll go, I'll go to Greece. So he goes up to, like, the Adriatic Sea to see if they've gone around there. <laughs> and eventually that's that's being too good at your job you're just yeah, too quick he's too good right because eventually he comes back down from the adriatic goes past egypt and then he's absolutely shocked to see an entire french fleet just sat at egypt and he's like where the fuck did they get here <laughs> you're so slow yeah nelson did what any true english gentleman would do and fired upon it destroying several ships including the flagship, the Orient, and several ships were captured as well and taken away. Napoleon was now effectively stranded in Egypt. I think that's hilarious that he was like, oh shit, boys, blow that up now. <laughs> blow that up. <laughs> We've got to take some news back to England. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going back saying I missed them because I was too fucking quick. <laughs> like, I'm not having that. <laughs> But Napoleon, he's not too concerned about his French fleet sort of being destroyed, right? He'd only just recently got to Egypt, right? He's got lots to do here. He could figure out how to get back another time. I suppose the point was he was there to try and establish some relationships, build some, you know, friendships and stuff, and that will help get him back. Now, when the French got to the ancient city of Alexandria, which, as you can imagine, right, Napoleon is a big fan of history. He loves Alexander the Great. He is well excited mm. to go to Alexandria. 
Yeah. When they got to the city of Alexandria, there's a little battle, but they eventually got in, right? I think it's safe to say that they were underwhelmed. It looked nothing like the city of legend many had heard about in the storybooks. It was, to put it nicely, a bit of a shithole. See... Look, yeah, the, the stories come from thousands of years ago. <laughs> yeah, what do you think was there? Exactly, right? Many people might not know this, but the River Nile actually moves and changes its course. So what was once an important city on the banks of the Nile, rife with trade and riches, had fallen out of favour and was now just some place with lots of old stuff there. <laughs> you, also, <laughs> you also have to remember, as James, you've put it, right? Egypt is old as balls. This place has thousands of years of history just sitting under the sand that pops up from time to time. For Cleopatra, looking at the pyramids, she went, fuck me, that's old. Cleopatra being yeah. born is closer to us going to the moon than it was for her being born and the pyramids being finished. That's the, it's like that's wild. Yeah, exactly. There's like two and a half thousand years between the pyramids being finished and Cleopatra being born. There is less time between her being born and us going to the moon. But this is the, when I was walking around Rome, they have ancient Egyptian obelisks everywhere. That I, I forget which emperor it was, maybe Trajan, I don't know. They, they were in um, Egypt, because obviously ancient, uh, the Roman Empire took over Egypt, and they were like, that is really cool, that's history. That The ancient Romans looked at Egypt and went, look at this ancient civilization. Yeah. we'll take some of that. Yeah. And the exact same as we do to Rome now. It's so interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, you're spot on. So, but by the time Napoleon actually reached Egypt, it had been a Muslim country for over a thousand years and had pretty much forgotten about its pharaoh past. So it wasn't an uncommon sight to just see people sitting on fallen down obelisks like you would a park bench or <laughs> just seeing a door propped open by some old ruins. And so Napoleon and his scientific community that had just gone there are like, uh, where are the temples? Why isn't this place as grand as I thought it would be? <laughs> It's so naive of them as well. That's so naive. <laughs> Maybe the city of Cairo with its famous pyramids would be better. So they made their way south to Cairo, but it was an eventful trek. On their way, they were met by an Ottoman army of Mamluks. Now, Mamluk is a really hard to describe thing, but um, think of slave soldiers who are really good at what they do. And they're predominantly like cavalry. That's their thing. They love their horses. Right. These guys, so the Ottoman Empire at this point, um, owns, rules Egypt, um, but indirectly. So they own it, but they had the Mamluks to kind of rule it for them. And Mamluks are, like I say, they're slave soldiers, so they don't have any real uh, affiliation to any nation, and they thought that would save them. So they're, like, they're just in Egypt, yeah. just ruling it. They don't really care about it. That's just their job. So anyway, they're ambushed by Mamluks and their cavalry. So Napoleon gets his men into an infantry square, which is what he's famous for, right? A tactic mm -hmm. that's incredibly effective against cavalry. See, horses don't mind charging at a single person. They can see what's around it. They can just run through it. They know it's unlikely it's going to hurt them if they run at it. But they don't like running at walls. Walls are quite scary. Horses won't go near an infantry square. They just run around it, which makes them easy pickings for marksmen and their rifles. Now, after about an hour on the defence, Napoleon just gets bored and he just orders his men to attack them and the Mamluks flee to fight another day. Napoleon's men suffer 20 casualties. The Mamluks, a thousand. You'd be livid if you were one of those 20 men. 
<laughs> yeah. Do you know what? I thought this before, and I think we may have talked about it when we we've spoke about World War One. If you were that guy that died just before eleven o'clock on the eleventh of November, yeah. how pissed are you gonna be? Yeah. Like, bro, you'd be absolutely. It'd be like I bet there'd be jokes about you as well between you know, the men that are. Had to be fucking Tim, didn't it? Classic <laughs> Tim. Classic Tim. So close. Yeah. And you know that Tim was like, hey, boys, I'm just going to pop my head over. Huh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> now, safe to say, the trek down to Cairo sucked. It had taken them two weeks to cross the desert. Now, crossing a desert in the best of circumstances is no mean feat. But this is a European army wearing woolen uniforms in July. Oh, you're going to be sweaty. It's literally the worst time of year to do this. Yeah. And Napoleon has this really bad thing. He treks through Egypt in the summer and later in his career goes to Russia in the winter. In the winter. This... Yeah, just do it the other way around. <laughs> yeah. Men were dropping like flies. Many were coming down with sickness. They were all virtually dying of thirst since the water was running dry. And many of the men were going mad from the heat. In fact a lot of them committed suicide. Christ. They straight up just shot themselves because it was just too much. They, they were thirsty. They're probably dehydrated. They're pounding headaches. They don't think they're going to get any further. They're going mad from the heat. And they just straight up just pull out their pistols and bam, done. To be fair, like, obviously we can't relate to that extent, but in the summer when it gets too hot and you get really irritable, you start feeling really fucking like, oh, imagine that just constantly, but like times 100. Yeah, and you're wearing woolen uniform you've got a big pack that's like carrying stuff 20 yeah. pounds on your back you've got your rifle in your hand you think oh it's too much yeah and you're surrounded um, fact- by french people as well <laughs> in fact uh, one of napoleon's generals um claims that this expedition is not properly thought out um the men are dropping like flies they should just get out of there they should secure the mediterranean sea and come back better prepared and napoleon shuts him down he's like bro we are continuing. You can either get on board or fuck off. And the general, knowing that this would be the end of his career if he continued to just defy him, just decided to walk out into the desert of his own accord and just shot himself. Oh, fucking hell. Can you imagine, like, imagine the, the mental strength to do that? That you're like, yeah. I'm just going to, now, now. There had to be no other hope. Like, that, that was it. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's exactly it. He's just got nothing else in his mind. He's thinking, nah, that's, I'm not doing this. Now, what's also really quite scary is the convoy is stalked by Bedouins who would attack them randomly. They just follow them all the time and then out of nowhere just attack the convoy. They would then kidnap some soldiers and just run away. And then within within sight, but out of range of like their muskets, the Bedouins would just cut the throats of the soldier in front of them. Just to just, like, scare the shit out of them. Mad. That's all you need when you're hot and bothered, isn't it? It's people fucking attacking you. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the blood's hotter as well. You think, oh, it's not even cooled me down. (laughs) (laughs) Now, when they reached the Nile, they were ecstatic. They were like, wow, water, excellent. It's going to be cold as well. So a lot of the men just straight up jumped in the River Nile to cool off. And then a lot of them got eaten by crocodiles as well. That, what was that? That's just triggered a memory of mine. I can't remember what it... it, it I don't want to go into too much detail, but there's a battle somewhere, somewhere in the world during a war. I think it was in Asia, 
where it's like the biggest massacre by animals ever where like one army pushed another army to retreat and they retreated into a swamp and like 2,000 men got eaten by crocodiles. But that's besides the point. That's nothing to do with this story, but the word crocodile made me think of that. I'll look it up. I'll bring it up again in the future. That is really cool though. So this is just another one of those lucky escapes from Napoleon, right? A lot of his men agree with that general who had shot himself that they had issues, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they had issues, right? That's one way of putting it. Yeah, and... Had that general just been a wee bit more persuasive, Napoleon could have just been overthrown by all of his men. He's got like 30,000 men, right? Mm. And he would have just at that point just become just some other general who had a good moment in his career and then that was it. That that would have happened, yeah. but he was just stronger than that general in this instance. He was like, ah, oh, get fucked. I'm not doing it. <laughs> Let's talk about the Battle of the Pyramids. Woo. On July 21st, around 10 to 15 miles away from the pyramids of Giza themselves, Napoleon came across the Mamluks and their cavalry again. Napoleon's men set up in their square formations. They watched as the Mamluks charged at them to no effect again. They really did not know what to do, right? See, the Mamluks were famous in their time. They'd actually held off the Mongols back in the day. But they'd not come across a modern, up-to-date weaponry, artillery or tactics at all. So Napoleon coming in with his modern European like army absolutely decimates them, killing 10,000 Mamluks to his 300. That's some serious fucking numbers. That's, a, that's a, a ratio and a half. It's a ratio. Now, a great victory was won, giving the French the morale boost they needed. They were on the banks of the Nile in Cairo. They had access to water, and Cairo was a functioning city. Things were looking up. Now, here is where Napoleon is now the master of Egypt, right? He goes about reforming the city on the French model. He sets up councils and directories in towns. He proclaims that the Ottoman Empire is the enemy of everyday Egyptians and that he was there to help liberate them. He was a friend of Islam and wanted what was best for them. He even got religious leaders to come in and rule the place on his behalf. So he's now got puppets leading the place under his sort of military rule. Mm-hmm. Napoleon, and this is weird, Napoleon even goes so far as to host a dinner slash show on the Prophet Muhammad's birthday. And there's a whole there's a whole show. He gets his soldiers to do drills and he directs the whole thing himself. He's like, right, boys, you're going to go this way. Then you're going to go that way. A whole military procession in honor of the Prophet mm. Muhammad on his birthday. Right. And whilst that's happening, he sat at this big top table with some of the religious leaders and he is in authentic Egyptian clothing and sporting a turban. You can't picture Napoleon doing that, can you? I mean, nowadays that's cultural appropriation, but back then I suppose that is him showing that he is sort of, yeah. he understands the culture and he is one of them. I mean, yeah, he, he also proclaims that there is no better ally to the Prophet Muhammad than him and that they should just all be best friends. He's like, oh, listen, no one loves him better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> this guy I've literally just heard about. Yeah. What is interesting though is so... Napoleon had done his homework, right? So he'd spoken with people to like learn a bit more about Egypt and um, the culture and the Quran, Islam, what's all that about? And when they get to Egypt, he actually says to a lot of his soldiers, right, don't do this, don't do that, make sure you don't do this because that will offend people, try and be better, which is quite cool. Mm. So there is a little bit about him that is genuinely interested in their culture and he wants to try and get on board with it at least somewhere. He's also a man that knows 
about revolutions and uprisings and probably how to stop one. Oh, so yeah. if you keep the the masses happy, they won't revolt against oh, you. Absolutely, like secretly, he's just desperately trying to get everyone on side so he can then just you know one get out of Egypt, but two kind of make it work. Mm. Now, when the religious leaders fall for it, they're all like, "Oh, Napoleon, you know you're saying you're the best friend of like Muhammad. You know what you should do you, to show that you really care. You should get yourself converted into Islam. Do it." Oh, and he's like, "Oh." <laughs> about that slowly undoing his turban like (laughs) sorry my mum's ringing I've just got to go (laughs) Um, he manages to evade this by saying that his men would never have it not only would they 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 love their wine too much and in Islam at the time especially it was like no drinking alcohol and he was like listen it's part of our culture to drink wine For, for for my army to convert they'd have to give up the wine and we cannot, like, that's just part of us. Like, I wouldn't ask you to do certain Mm. things. I'm sorry, that's not happening. But also, ain't no fucking way, as much as they loved him, was he going to go up to his, like, 30-odd thousand men and be like, all right, boys, um, so we've all converted to Islam. You all now need to get (laughs) circumcised because that was a thing back then. Oh, was it? Yeah, yeah. Form an orderly queue by the mini guillotine. (laughs) Imagine a mass... Get this done. Mass circumcision. (laughs) In them days as well, like it's not, it wouldn't be as surgical as it is now. I oh imagine. god, yeah, like it's bad enough for a child, but like you know, an adult. Oh no, thank you. Yeah, so yeah, he got out of that one, which I think is absolutely hilarious. Now, I mean, I think it's safe to say the people saw through Napoleon's shit, right? They they didn't actually like the fact that he's a Christian guy. He's trying to rule them. Uh, they didn't like how the French were assaulting their women in Cairo. Um, in many uh, French, ma- many French soldiers were being straight up murdered at night. Um, which got to the point where soldiers just would not go out alone. They had to go out in twos and threes. Um, the French mm. were being the French were beheading Egyptians left, right, and centre for being anti them being there, um, which then obviously pissed off more people. Cairo was just at boiling point, right? That pot was about to go bang, and a revolt began, and it wouldn't last long. Napoleon's fake kindness completely faded at this point, and he turned back into Napoleon. When the revolt was over, 6,000 citizens were dead. Right. This guy, that's that's like massacres, numbers. Like that's, yeah. that's I mean, I bet he was like, that. I gave you a chance. Yeah. Like, I tried. He's like, oh, listen, boys, I tried. I wore a turban. I, I, I said I was a yeah. friend of Mohammed. Um, <laughs> anyway, think, show. things had gone terribly bad. Now, I'm not going to go into too much more because, honestly... Napoleon's Egyptian campaign, unlike the movie's two minutes, could genuinely go on for hours. There is so much happening in here. And he's only here for like a year and a half. So why I will say, Napoleon from there has to get out of Egypt, right? And he's got lots of enemies in the Middle East at this point. So Napoleon embarks on a journey across the Middle East, trying to like get rid of a lot of these enemies to try and secure himself a bit more in the region. Ends up in Syria... Um, which is quite far away, and ends up having to come back down because the Syrian campaign just does not work. And now there has been a jihad proclaimed against the French uh, in Egypt. So that even coming back into Egypt, they were not safe. And he knew he needed to get out, especially since he got word that France was now at war with a second coalition of nations fighting them. He needed to be back in France fighting for the revolution, 
not just because he loves France, but because he needs a promotion. You see, the campaign in Egypt has been a complete and utter failure, and it needs he needs to make up for it. So, he leaves his army in Egypt in the hands of another general, and this is, this is no word of a lie, he literally just straight up boards a ship and quietly gets out of Dodge. Really? Just without telling anyone? Yeah. So the army, right, he says to one of his other generals, he's like, right, boys, I'm, I'm going to leave the army in your hands. I'm just going to, I'm going to go with a few men. We're going to do a little survey of the, of the country. We'll be back. And then he just gets on board a ship and fucks off. Yeah, it's just popping out for a pack of cigarettes and just never returns. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now for the men left behind, they really don't have a good time. Um, tens of thousands of men uh, would be killed in this time before they surrender to the British, who had them evacuated and then sent home. More than oh, really? yeah, more than Napoleon did for them. So, just to you know, rub it in a bit more because we're so better than them. Remember the Battle of <laughs> Toulon in Part One. How many thousands mm. of of people the English saved from Toulon when Napoleon was having a go at it? <laughs> mm, Literally, yeah. like I think like thirteen thousand or something, like it was like or thirteen hundred, one of the other. Either way, it's in the thousands of people the British saved. French people out of France having them kill themselves. Um, at this point, England come back and they're like, yo, what's going on? You're not having a good time? And they're like, no. <laughs> Can you please help us get out? And they're like, all right, cool. Here's the deal. We'll help you get out. In fact, what we'll do, well, not only will we help an army of France get out, we'll even send you back to France. You're going to give us everything you found in Egypt. Yeah, and we're going to take it back to our museum yeah exactly that and included in that discovery was the rosetta stone which is why we have it was it actually yeah no way that's so funny that's why so napoleon could have had it yeah exactly napoleon discovered it on that voyage um and it was supposed to come back to france but yeah it was one of the um conditions that we would rescue them we're like right everything you found we're having it and they went oh, okay fine take it take it all that's so fucking british isn't it? it's cool isn't it um yeah so yeah, that's how we got the Rosetta Stone. And what's funny is when we got it, there's a there's a signage on the side of the Rosetta Stone. I think it's like um, captured from the French by the English, written on the Rosetta Stone, <laughs> right? And that's just on there. And then it got back to England. And I think King George at the time, when he gifted it to the British Museum where it sits today, he then wrote on the other side, going "gifted by the King." <laughs> <laughs> I can't. Like I that. must admit the Rosetta Stone. I've seen it a couple of times and. I don't, whenever you hear the words Rosetta Stone, I, without like, if you don't know what it is, it sounds a lot more grand than what it is. If you know what I mean, like it's it's important and like it's really cool when you know what it is. But to look at it, it's a slab of rock, basically. I don't know. I mean, I've looked at it a couple with times. with a bit of inscription on it. I've looked at it a couple times, and I have looked at it and gone, "That's really cool." It's don't get me wrong, it's cool, but it's it's not like a slab of gold, like a tablet. Mm. It's it's quite literally a stone, and the positioning in the museum is really weird. You sort of walk into a room, and it's just kind of there in front of you. Yeah, it's very it's kind of easy to miss. Yeah, but there's usually a lot of people around it. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, it's it's funny how a lot of the stuff we have in that British museum was because we just stole it from the French because they were having such a bad time in Egypt. <laughs> when I was in Rome, when I when I was in the Colosseum, we were talking about all the stuff that the Romans had stolen from Egypt. Um, and then she was like, that's the one thing that the Romans, the French and the English have in common. Like we sort of go to places and go, oh, that's really nice. You know where that would look better? Our house. <laughs> and just take it. 
That's so funny. I love that. <laughs> so, uh, back in France, knowing that, you know, Egypt was a supreme failure, Napoleon got ahead of the story, proclaiming a great victory in Egypt. He's met with a hero's welcome in France. He even erects his own pyramid in France to honour the campaign. This guy, like, knows how to sell himself. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, this, this it was a fantastic campaign. Yeah, brilliant stuff. Look, I'll, I'll even make a pyramid just like they have there. So, the Egyptian campaign, yeah, a bit of a colossal failure. Uh, but did any good come of it? Well, the French discovered the Rosetta Stone, which was offered up to the British as part of payment for the French evacuation in Egypt, which is why we have it. But it was because of the Rosetta Stone that we were able to decipher hieroglyphics, giving us a deeper understanding of ancient Egypt. It also sparked a fascination with everything Egyptian, which would eventually lead to the British Empire taking it over in the 20th century. So, arguably, without Napoleon's um, campaign to it, uh, Egypt, uh, we would not have discovered how to reread um, hieroglyphics and learn That's so much so about interesting. it. That's so interesting. It's cool, right? Because, like, in in England specifically, there's such a fascination with ancient Egypt. Yeah. It's, just, it's just huge for us. I think it's all of our museums. Like even the Museum of Birmingham has mummies. I don't know why. They're just there. Mm. But it, it's, it's just fascinating. There's a um, a guy I follow on Instagram. I can't remember his name. But it's really interesting. But he, he's like an Egyptologist. And it's like he, he's... There's, there's ancient Egyptian artifacts or like writings or whatever. But it's so like modern but ancient Egypt. So one of them is literally a complaint letter. Someone stole someone something shoddy and there's in hieroglyphics just written a complaint letter. He's got sick notes, like thousand year old sick notes. And it's just I find that so fascinating that you're like, wow, these were just people. I love that. They're like us. Yeah, see I like those better than any of the other things. So like, you know and we thing is we've said this on the show before where, you know, when we're talking about a person, but then we talk about like their wife or the mother of someone and the dad, they're like he was a merchant who did this in his life. And when he was 20, that, mm. but then when it's the mum, it's like, she's just a housewife. And it's like, no, she's not. She's a lot, she's a lot more than that. And she's probably a lot more interesting than even the husband probably was. And I love that about history. And I, I think that's sad that we don't have as much of that. In fact, like, you know, um, you know, the massive, like famous mosque in um, Istanbul. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Obviously like at, at that point when it was Constantinople, they had a lot of, um, like uh viking soldiers back then who they like hire in as mercenaries yeah and mm. um a lot of them would just like sc- like scribble their names in like runes and shit on the fucking walls and it's just yeah. it's just basically like bjorn was here i love that yeah I th- it is so funny that's so good it's just like yeah bjorn was here <laughs> Yeah, he yeah. was. It's the same with Warwick Castle on the on the walls. If you go into any, like some of the rooms in the tower and you look, it looks like carvings, like modern day carvings, and then they date it like fifteen hundred and something. Like, that's fucking wild. Yeah, I like the normalcy of history. Sometimes I just like how normal some people are, uh, no matter when. I I think there's even like inscriptions of like penises like that like hundreds of years ago. People just couldn't resist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I bet Pe- people will always be people, and I, I think that's so interesting. Yeah, they found it funny. Um, it's like the Roman stuff. Some of them, and they're like, "Yeah, this was um, Maximus. He was a baker." They're like, "Yeah, he was." Yeah, <laughs> that guy baked bread. <laughs> yeah, I love it. He was a baker. Now, for Napoleon back in France, things were in chaos. Robespierre was dead, having been guillotined, and the French government was in turmoil. It needed a strong man to take control, and that man was just about to play a blinder in convincing everyone that he'd just gone back from a wondrous victory in Egypt. 
Napoleon is one step away from becoming the ruler of France. And that, my friends, is where we're going to leave part two. Coming up next, part three in the new year. <laughs> I said it before we started recording, and I'll say it now for everyone to listen to. Like, I think it's understandable why this is going to be a three-parter, because we've still got some massive fucking things to talk about. Like, Russia is a big one. Battle of Waterloo, OBS. Yeah, I mean... And also, the one thing that they did in the film that I didn't actually know is when Napoleon sort of fell out of favour and then just came back. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a fascinating time um, that we will we will get on. So there is a lot to cover in part three. So just be, be in for a long one on part three because I'm not doing a part four. Uh, <laughs> um, but no, I was saying to you, we were saying before we were recording, James, that, you know, when we've done like Churchill and Hitler and lots of other ones where we have to do big like three, four-parter episodes, these are people that have done massive stuff in their life like these people Mm. have quite literally shaped the world that we live in today um oh they changed history forever absolutely changed they changed the course of history so to just like nail them all in like 40 minutes to an hour episode it's just not doable and like even even with churchill like that could have been a 10-part series and we still wouldn't have covered Mm -hmm. everything in his lifetime Uh, that's how much stuff you know is is important and, and had happened to him so I hope that, like I said in part one, I hope that um, we we are looking at the way I did this when I said I wanted to do a historically accurate version of, of Napoleon instead of Ridley Scott's make-believe. Um, and, and I hope that we've got, the, got to the point where we understand because I missed stuff out doesn't mean that it, uh, like, you know, it's not, it didn't happen. It's just not necessarily relevant to the story we want to tell because there's just too much yeah. to tell. So I'm trying to pinpoint some of the real big bits and sort of enjoy those. Um, but yeah, Thank you very much for listening to part two, guys. I hope you've enjoyed it so far. I know uh, uh, Marva Haas' dad, uh, Steve, I know you're listening. Um, he was eagerly waiting for this one. He was like, how are you getting on with part two? I was like, I haven't written it yet, Steve. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, here you go, Steve. You, you go. can wait a few few weeks for part three. Yeah, exactly. Um, he's on the Patreon, so he's got some stuff to watch there. Um, which, if you want to do that, you can always subscribe to us on Patreon. It'd be a nice Christmas gift to you and us. And there are things to mm. watch there, including our... Uh, documentary interview with uh, Terry Wade, uh, uh, a ripperologist, yep. uh, where we talk about Jack the Ripper, and uh, our most recent documentary where we talk about Jack the Stripper, the Hammersmith nude murders, and we walk around London talking about lots of ladies being that was a good one killed. It's not very nice. Um, and I am in the midst of editing Italy, yeah. So that is coming. It's just it's taking a lot longer than I thought it would because. I didn't film it in a way that was easy for anyone to understand, <laughs> let alone me. Yeah. And I've got to narrate it. It's, it's, it's a whole thing, but it's coming. I promise you it's coming. It's going to be episodes as well. So there's going to be three episodes. Oh, excellent. So yeah, we've got some bits coming up. Um, so yeah, consider joining us on Patreon as a Christmas present to your favourite podcast. Um, thank you very much for listening, everyone. And uh, yeah, we'll see you on the next episode. We're going to have a little Christmassy one and then we're going to have a nice New Year uh, quiz that you'll be able to play along um, too. So join us for that coming real soon. Love you guys. Bye. Goodbye.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 